Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. We have a special treat for you today as we are sharing with you one of the shows we originally did for our Patreon listeners. In the episode, David and Steve preview the MotoGP test at Qatar and talk about the start of the season. We hope you enjoy their insights and if you do want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast. We will of course have a regular show for you on Wednesday, which will be a debrief on the action from Qatar. But until then, enjoy the special episode brought to you by our friends at Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast powered by Patreon subscribers for this week's Patreon special. I'll tell you what, David Emmett, that is an awful lot of peas for us. <laughs> There's already uh, a lot of peas, um, so we shall have to mind our cues. And uh, David, I'll tell you what, there's an awful lot to be minded of uh, uh, the queues in Qatar as well, because uh, we're recording this just before the start of the first official test of the 2021 season. Obviously, motorbikes are actually going to be out on track from tomorrow. Uh, yes, and it's sort of, it's it just feels really odd because there's been no Sepang and um, uh, anything else. And uh, yeah, it, it just feels a little bit odd, but it also really quite exciting. And obviously, Dave, the structure of this test is we've got the shakedown test like we normally would in Sepang, and then everyone's out on track then as well. And it's pretty full as well. There's an awful lot of test riders through the course of this, the likes of Danny Pedrosa, obviously, at KTM, Stefan Bradl at Honda, Cal Crutchlow getting his first outing on the Yamaha. Uh, yeah, and as well as the Suzuki te- uh, test riders, uh, Silvan Guintoli, um, uh, Yamaha are going to have their the Japanese test riders there as well. Uh, so yeah, it really is. It really is going to be busy. Michele Piro, um, uh, it's still not entirely clear who Aprilia are going to bring as a test rider, but uh, we shall see about that. Because obviously, we had the Aprilia presentation today, and they told us that um, Lorenzo Savadori is obviously the factory rider who gets the second seat, um, but Bradley Smith is. What really wants to be racing? He doesn't want to be just a test rider, so uh, he's trying to get a test role or he's trying to get a, a, a seat to go racing. But um, the door is still open for him as an Aprilia test rider. Well, Dave, we might as well start off with Aprilia then, and uh, we'll give a little rundown on what we can expect from them. Obviously, it's been a bit of a nightmare for Aprilia over the last few years, and it actually came in from one of our patrons, Andrew Cohen. He asked. Can we ever really expect any success from Aprilia? What, what's the issue there? Is it leadership? Is it resources? Is it technical know-how? What do you see as being the big problem at Aprilia? Uh, well, there's a lot of things, there, but, but perhaps the biggest thing, and also the reason why I'm sort of fairly optimistic this uh, year, certainly um, Romano Albasiano was uh, extremely optimistic, the thing is, uh, development is engine development specifically is frozen for this year, uh, for the other five manufacturers. Uh, KTM got to develop their engine up until the start of this season, but they won't be able to develop it for the rest of the, for the rest of the season. Um, but this will be the first time that Aprilia have got concessions and no one else doesn't. So they actually have a chance to catch up. And Romano Albasiano was saying that they think they've made the same step with the bike, um, for this year, then they made between 2019 and 2020, and they made a big step to the with the bike between 2019 and 2020. Um, but unfortunately, everyone else made a step, and so even though they closed the gap a bit, um, the, the the gap was still there, and the field is so incredibly tight in MotoGP that it's difficult. It's 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 all it's almost difficult to actually see progress. Um, so 
the problem is uh, the problem was that Romano Albasiano was uh, being both manager and um, uh, and technical director. Um, since last year, they've had uh, Massimo Rivola who come in to do the management side, and that's been a big improvement. Um, a lot of his resources, um, apparently, doesn't have the same. Just you know, they, they, they don't have the same deep pockets. They don't have the same budget to spend on development, uh, and they rely almost entirely on uh, Alessius Bargaro. Uh, they have one fast rider and they have had for a long time had one fast rider and never really given their second rider a a, a chance I mean you know that they could have had a chance with uh, Andrea Iannone but then he uh, decided to um, have a stake and that all went wrong so uh, yeah it's uh, it's a combination of factors but th- this year I think they said They've updated the engine. They've got a new engine. They've got new uh, aerodynamics. Last year, they were forced to run uh, uh, the the wrong aerodynamics because aerodynamics were suddenly frozen. Um, they've got a new chassis. They've got a new swing arm, a carbon swing arm. Uh, they've uh, changed the rear seat gear unit because which they think will help fix chatter. Uh, really, it's a once again, it's a completely or not a completely new bike, but it's a very very new bike. Um, last year, of course, they also switched to, the, to a 90 degree uh, V, uh, which made a big difference, um, or it made a big difference. It's a big change, and it takes a while to actually figure uh, figure all those things out. So there's room for optimism, but uh, as with all things Aprilia, it should the optimism should very much be cautious. Just, uh, David, you mentioned there about the changes they've made to the bike for this year. You mentioned the seat unit, and obviously lots of new aero on the bike. I saw a comment from Scott Redding. Obviously, Scott's not a man with an axe to grind with Aprilia <laughs> at all. But uh, Scott was commenting on Instagram that it's amazing how much this manufacturer copies others. And when you look at the Aprilia, like I, I've only seen it obviously today, but you look at the rear end, it looks like a Ducati. You look at the front, it looks like a Yamaha. Do you think does, does Scott have something to what he's saying? Yeah, but I mean that's what everyone does. Everyone copies. That's the that's very much the point. I mean, you know, why have they all got wings? Because um, Ducati uh, stuck a pair on, found it worked, uh, it helped in a particular area, area, and everyone else realised, oh god, we've got to fix it now. And if you look at the uh, designs, I mean, KTM are the same. KTM went from uh, having copied Yamaha's wings to having copied Honda's wings. and even though I mean, you know, they're different, and it all works differently, and it's all designed differently. They, you know, they take a look and they uh, uh, and they sort of try and figure out what the other manufacturer has done. And the first thing you do is copy it, and then you try and improve it and, and change it. I mean, you know, photographers are wandering up and down pit lane all the time trying to take pictures of uh, uh, of all the bikes and sell them to manufacturers. Uh, Dave, just uh, before we move on from Aprilia, I just want to ask you what you expect from Lorenzo Salvadori we we heard at the launch and uh, over the course of the last while Aprilia have talked a lot about how he improved whenever he got the chance last year he learned you know pretty much every time he got in the bike they saw some sort of an improvement from him do you have any high expectation for him or is it just another lamb to the slaughter compared to Aleish on the other side of the garage um well to an extent what do you expect? I mean, you expect him to improve until the end of the year, but, uh, you know, he's no, he, he's not going to come and do a, um, a Brad Binder or an Alex Rins. He's going to come in and do, uh, a, you know, a bit of Bradley Smith. He'll come in, he'll be, uh, 
uh, he'll be all right. He'll be adequate. Um, but really, what uh, I probably want is a competitive rider, and it's really, really difficult to actually get. It's a chicken and egg situation. They need a competitive rider on the bike, um, but as long as the bike isn't competitive, no one competitive wants to get on the bike. So, um, yeah, they need, they really need someone. Uh, they need to show what they can do before they can persuade someone to race the thing. Yeah, well, let's move on from Aprilia. Obviously, you started with Aprilia, David, so we'll just move in alphabetical order now and uh, we'll go straight to Ducati. And for me, the biggest story with Ducati is obviously the fact that they've got three rookies on the bike. They've got Bastianini, they've got Luca Marini, they've got Jorge Martin. And this is all of their first chance to ride a MotoGP bike. So it's going to be interesting to see how they can adapt to it. Yeah, I mean, but we've seen rookies get on uh, not too bad with the uh, with the Ducati. It's not like the Honda where it's um, where it's sort of all or nothing. Uh, we've really got to radically change everything. But then it's not like the the Yamaha where you just jump on and go fast straight away, like we saw with Fabio Quartararo. Um, it does take a bit of getting used to. Um, there's a few of those riders. I mean, Jorge Martin, um, especially the riders who've ridden. For example, the KTM Moto Two bike that would that had a sort of similar characteristic. It had um, it needed to be braked hard and aggressively. It needed to be ridden aggressively. Uh, the Ducati needs to be ridden aggressively, well, aggressively and smoothly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, uh, looking forward to seeing what the rookies can do. Especially my personal tip is Anea Bastianini. I think he's got. Uh, what it takes. Um, uh, someone else uh, mentioned uh, Anea Bastianini to me. Um, I think uh, uh, I think Bastianini could be uh, could be quite surprised. He certainly, I mean, he absolutely surprised me in Moto Two. He did much much better in Moto Two than I was expecting. Uh, so we shall, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see about that. But um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. The, uh, again, Ducati will be coming with um, uh, some updates, but Ducati they want to um, uh, they're working on a new chassis, but they can't use the new chassis because they're using the old engine. Um, and uh, the new chassis requires it. One of the one of the mount points has changed, so they are using the you know they're using a different um, uh, using a different mount point, and that's that's a problem. Well, let's move on to the factory Ducatis then as well, Dave, because obviously this is when we'll be able to see Jack Miller, Paco Bagnaia on the factory bikes, Johan Zarco, of course, on the Pramac bike as well, testing. But uh, for the factory team, this is massive as well, because this is the opportunity to really see what they've got. Obviously, we've been able to see at the Pramac team, Miller and Bagnaia, but suddenly there's a lot more pressure. You're on that factory seat and it's really down to you to take charge, try and really assert yourself and that's what's going to be interesting right from the outset from this test forward uh, yes it, it, exactly um, um it feels almost like a uh sort of a leap of desperation really for ducati they've they've moved all sorts of people around and uh, moved people up and got rid of the old guard they got rid of andrea davicioso um uh, who by the end was in a very unhappy marriage there was some comments from him to uh, an Italian newspaper earlier in the week saying basically, you know, we all got on fine except for one person, uh, meaning Gigi Deligna. Um But the, I still think the fundamental problem with uh, Ducati is that um, they think the problem is the rider and not the bike. They think the bike is, you know, fine. They just need someone to actually go out and win it. Uh, a bike still doesn't quite turn as much. We, we I mean, obviously, we're coming up to the test. And, uh, the test, um, 
it's always the chance to debut new aero. Um, I don't expect to see new aero from Ducati at this first test, these first few days. Uh, they will leave it as late as possible. So we probably won't see the new aero until uh, the second test, which starts on next Wednesday, uh, because Ducati don't want to give anyone any time to go, uh, you know, take photos, take, uh, go home, copy it, and copy all of their ideas. So um, uh, that's going to, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned, Dave, about Ducati's typical structure, really, for the Qatar test. It is to bring the developments as late as possible. We've seen them where they've basically meant that they get a bit of a jump on everyone else because they've got those developments ready. They've pushed the boat out year after year since Gigi came in. And you'd certainly expect to see something again from them over the next week. While I saw Simon Crafar, who's over in Qatar, that he tweeted that he's already seen quite a few new bits up and down pit lane on, on plenty of bikes. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. But the, the, the trouble with um, trouble with Ducati is you never know what you're going to see. And the other thing is um, you, you might see something really, really obvious, uh, but they've uh, stuck it on as a, as, a uh, as a diversion. You know, it's a bit of a squirrel thing where, you know, you're all there looking at the fancy new, uh, I don't know, the fancy new headlights on the thing, and whereas they've actually just uh, got a completely new chassis, which which nobody has noticed. So it's um, uh, testing is very much a a war of ideas and a war of uh, sort of secrecy as well. Uh, you're a, a war of misdirection. They're trying to uh, trick you into not seeing the things which really matter. This is actually something, Dave, that a lot of our listeners do actually ask us about, and it's when you're working in pit lane for Eurosport. How much of what you find out do you find out yourself? And how much of it is it where all the pit lane reporters pull together a little bit? Oh, I saw this. Did you see that? Well, how does it come about that you really find out the information? It's a bit of, it's a bit of everything. I mean, it's um, uh, there are people in pit lane that you like and, and, and that you work with uh, that you, you know you can trust. Um, and certainly uh, someone like Simon Crafar, someone like Michael Laverty for BT Sport, they are absolutely fantastic. Um, they, uh, because they're both ex-riders, they really spot things. Uh, I, it takes me much longer to actually see things, but when I do see things, uh, then I will, um, I will tell them or ask them, have you seen this? And sometimes they haven't seen it and sometimes they will, uh, uh, and they'll, uh, you know, come along and look. And sometimes they'll tell me, you oh, know, go, go now and look at the Honda. There's something, uh, there's something on there. So, uh, it's all that. And sometimes, uh, sometimes people will just tell you, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, we're trying this, uh, we're, we're trying this today. Uh, usually if they're telling you something, um, they're trying to, Again, we're back to the misdirection. They're trying to distract your attention from something else. And of course, I'm also lucky to work with uh, uh, Peter Bomb, the former Moto2 engineer, um, uh, up in the commentary box as a former crew chief and as a really, really brilliant engineer. It's always really interesting listening to what he's uh, got to say. I will ask him if I, oh, look, I think I've seen this, and he'll be able to say, all right, well, they might be trying to do this or this or this. Um, and he can also point you in, point you in other directions. So uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah. You know, it's not some genius down in pit lane. It's always um, sharing information and keeping your eyes open and talking to people. Yeah, the myth of motor matters has now gone <laughs> out the window, Dave. Everyone's going to find out that suddenly it's all about everyone being able to help one another. But uh, speaking of helping one another, David, obviously at Honda, it's a bit of a strange situation. We don't have Mark Marquez testing this week. We've got Paulus Bagger with his first test on the bike. You've obviously got Marquez and Nakagami 
and Stefan Bradle here as well. So there is a lot of experience there from the likes of Bradle that knows the bike inside out. But for the likes of Paul, this is a real big test now. This test and obviously the second Qatari test, this is all he has before kicking off the start of the season. Yeah, I mean, he was extremely he was extremely confident, thought he was going to be perfectly fine. Uh, Honda seemed to have been doing quite a lot. Uh, they brought quite a different chassis um, to the Jerez test a lot earlier this year, which Stefan Bradle has been on. Um, we saw uh, yesterday, I think, uh, Johan Stiegerfeld complaining, the Petronas Yamaha um, manager, complaining about Stefan Bradle, uh, his dual role as racer and tester, um, filling in for Mark Marquez because you know he is getting to ride a lot and uh, getting to you getting to uh, apply that the data which he's gathering really really directly and he's being able to test at the racetrack as well um, which is uh, which I think has helped them a lot. Well, you also saw that with with Honda at the start of the season they were struggling and uh, the the bike really got significantly better to ride uh, towards the end of the season and I think they're going to make a, a sort of a similar step again this uh, this year. The absence of Mark Marquez who would just ride around problems um, I think that has made a big difference. I think it's made it, it means that they that they're trying to build a a bike that can. Um, uh, that you know, mere mortals can ride. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they bought. They have bought a lot, of, a lot of updates. Keep an eye on Takanakagami. Keep an eye on Alex Marquez because they're going to be the real reference uh, for uh, uh, over the course of the test. Do Honda have anyone else out as well, Dave? Do they have any other Japanese test riders? You mentioned Yamaha are going to bring out. They've got two of theirs. They've got Nakasuga and also Nozone, uh, Nozane as well. So is Takahashi out for Honda as well? As far as I know, he isn't. It's just Bradle and the um, uh, it's just Bradle and the, and the other Honda riders. And they, they've um, I mentioned um, KTM earlier on as well, or you mentioned KTM earlier on about um, what they're trying to do for next year. This is actually a really important time for KTM as well because obviously we saw that um, Mika Calio has broken his leg. And he's going to miss this test. How big of an impact does that make for a manufacturer like KTM? Because they've really relied an awful lot on Calio and also Danny Pedrosa as their test program. Yeah, well, they have sort of this stepped test uh, testing team where um, uh, Calio does a lot of mileage testing. He does a lot of um, uh, basic testing. Um, and Pedrosa is your luxury tester who can sort of really tell the refinements. At this point in the season, uh, losing... Uh, Calio is less serious than losing Pedrosa uh, because at this point they are working on, uh, you know, they're, they're fine-tuning the bike to get ready for the start of the season. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's unfortunate to lose uh, uh, Calio, but it would have been worse if they'd have lost uh, Pedrosa, I think. Um, Oliveira, obviously, in his, what, his third, uh, his third season with, with KTM, Brad Binder in his second season with KTM, uh, Danilo Petrucci, extremely, uh, extremely experienced. That's going to be very interesting. And it is basically a full factory bike setup. It's just that they split over two teams. Um, so there's going to be a lot of, uh, there really is going to be uh, a lot of input there. And KT we saw KTM, I mean, KTM's problem was that they were good at, at some tracks and not so good at uh, others. And they're looking for just more consistency over all tracks. Um, uh, I can't, can't remember how they went at, uh, 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 at the Qatar test last year. Um, uh, I would have to look it up. But there was, uh, the, 
I'm not sure whether Qatar is a is a good testing ground for them. I mean, it, once again, we'll have to wait and see over the course of a season uh, to see whether it's up and down or whether it is uh, just a uh, whether there are consistent challenges everywhere. That was actually one of the questions I had for you at the end of this, Dave. But I'll ask you now: losing the Sepang tests has a big impact on everyone because there's a reason why everyone goes to Sepang for the two tests. It's because it's a great track. It's got a little bit of everything. You've got high speeds, you've got heavy braking zones, you've got lots of fast corners, you've got basically any challenge imaginable. And that's going to be a big impact for everyone to try and really figure out exactly what they need from their bikes. And we've seen it in the past where teams have gone down a little bit of the wrong path. Obviously this year, engine isn't a big issue for anyone. They're going to be locked into what they had last year, except for Aprilia. But we have seen where aerodynamically, this has been an issue as well for teams in the past. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the trouble with pre-season testing is that you test at Sepang and you test at Qatar. Now, Sepang, the air is really, really hot. I mean, you know, it's well, you've, you've been there yourself. You know what it's like. Um, even in February, it's uh, sort of air temperatures, afternoon air temperatures are in the mid-30s. Uh, and so that changes the air density and makes the, uh, uh, makes the aerodynamics work differently. Um, then you go to Qatar where you've got really, where you've got, um, quite cool evening air. I mean, you know, the, uh, the ambient temperatures are in the, uh, are in the 20s, 20 degrees uh, centigrade. Um, so the air is much thicker, but the, the track surface is very, very different. Um, the layout of Qatar is fantastic, but um, the track surface is it really, it, it's quite aggressive, it's quite abrasive. The, the amount of sand that is always around uh, really messes everyone up, um, makes it more difficult. The fact that the ambient temperature is quite cold also, um, uh, it, it makes the engines, it means the engines produce more power. I mean, basically because they're running, they are running cooler and the cold air means that it's more, um, uh, there's more oxygen get, actually getting into the engines to actually be burnt and, and combusted. So, um, and that means more horsepower. So yeah, it's, um, Qatar is not, not really an ideal track. I mean, it's a good place to test a number of things, but it, it is such a peculiar track, uh, especially in terms of tyre grip that it can fool you, it can catch you out. Yeah, I think Qatar is more of a great track for a bike launch rather than pre-season testing because it's such a dusty track surface. You mentioned it there, David, just about how that track is so different compared to Sepang. But the problem with Qatar is because it's not really used all that much, we do always tend to have it where it needs to be rubbered in. It's always a bit of a struggle. And then in the past, you also had it where a lot of teams didn't really go out early in the day. They waited until you were into yeah. something a bit closer to the race times. And that ended up making the Qatar tests a little bit of a, a little bit of a washout, really, because you ended up where with the track being open from, I think it's, uh, I have it written down here, actually, it's two o'clock until yeah. nine o'clock. You used to end up where people didn't go out until four or five. So yeah. you missed out on a lot of valuable time at the start of those tests. But at least this year, you, there's a much greater incentive for everyone to go out earlier. So hopefully that means that they are able to get something a little, a little bit more useful from it. Um, Dave, speaking about usefulness, let's talk about uh, Danilo Petrucci as well. Obviously, he's gone to Tech for this season. He's on the KTM. He's another rider that has to try and jump in, understand the new bike, understand the new team. There's a lot to learn for Petrucci, but it's going to be interesting to see how he does because 
he's got a good opportunity there. You mentioned that KTM obviously has the same bike for both teams. So if he's able to come in and adapt himself well, he's certainly going to feel that he's going to have a good chance, especially whenever you're up against riders that aren't as experienced as him. And he could spring a few surprises. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, he is a... Uh, I'm interested to see what he can do. I think uh, the nature of the KTM is going to be sufficiently close to the Ducati for him to be able to, uh, you know, really impress uh, a few places. It, the KTM turns better than the Ducati did. It has a lot of horsepower, or has you know, you know, enough horsepower to be going on. It still has a few weaknesses, uh, but Petrucci is experienced. He can uh, sort of figure it out, and he can provide. Uh, the kind of inputs um, uh, from the perspective of a Ducati rider that that, that KTM needs. So uh, he's going to be important. But um, uh, again, I think for all of these riders who are switching manufacturers, uh, the first guitar test is not going to be indicative. The first guitar test is about uh, getting used to it. The second guitar test is where they need to be uh, completely up to speed, even though you know they'll the have only had... Uh, I don't know, whatever it might be, eight, eight, nine, ten hours on the bike uh, total, uh, but they will need to be completely up to speed by the second test. Well, let's go to a team, David, then, that is pretty much up to speed, Suzuki, because it's all the same at Suzuki, apart from, obviously, the change in management structure, but in terms of riders, in terms of the crews around those riders, in terms of having Sylvain Gantoli there, and uh, everything is the same for Suzuki. It was interesting, actually, Matt Oxley was writing this week that the key for Suzuki is just don't touch anything. Leave it all as it is and yeah. uh, see what happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the key to Suzuki is to uh, try not to break anything. So that means very, very sort of minor changes and minor updates. Uh, but the thing about Suzuki is they do have a really big weakness and the big weakness is qualifying. Um, so expect to see Suzuki riders going out, uh, doing short runs, um, uh, there, I mean, what we, it will be really important for Suzuki to be at the top of the timesheets because if they are at the top of the timesheets, it means that their one lap pace is fast. Um, they don't have to worry so much about their race pace because they know their race pace is good because they were starting sort of, you know, on the third row and still managing to get on the podium and win races. Um, what's really important is to try to work, to try to start from the front row. So, uh, yeah, if I suspect they're going to be working mainly on uh, qualifying. They're working on the engine character. All of the factories are working on the engine character. Even though the engines are frozen, you can still work with the airbox. You can work with the exhaust especially. Um, you can work with the electronics to change the character of the engine. Um, and so, yeah, I, I expect to see those sort of visible changes, which, again, is quite nice because you, at least you, you can see an exhaust. If they put a different exhaust on, at least that's something you can see rather than uh, some uh, obscure internal part which they've changed. You know, if they change the valves, we never find out until they go pop at Jerez. Yeah, well, that was a bit like, there was a good video on MotoGP.com from uh, Simon Crayfar at the Hareth cast where he was talking, I think it was just about the chassis stiffness and he was looking at the, the beam frame and he was able to say, oh, well, this is a little bit changed from last year. And you'd only know that if you're down looking at it yeah. every single day of the season. And that's what's always quite interesting about whenever you see something significant, like you said, Dave. So we'll wait and see what happens with Suzuki because you mentioned about their one lap pace. Yamaha's one lap pace isn't the issue. For the likes of Vinales, it's always been a case of trying to make sure those first couple of laps he's able to make his step. 
is there anything he can really do during the test to try and simulate that and try and make a step? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, he has to try and uh, he has to take off out of pit lane and try and go as fast as possible for for, for the first two laps. Um, it is more difficult to simulate, um, and it's the sort of thing. It was the reason why Andrea Dovizioso um, made made sure he always had a clause in his contract that he could go ra- uh, racing motocross, um, and it's the reason why, for example. Uh, riders train uh, flat track together or they train motocross together because you need to have that um, you also practice your starts so you need to practice that aggression that aggression straight out the uh, uh, straight from the from the start box and in fact I think one of the reasons the flat track is so great it's a very short race you're only out for sort of four or five maybe ten laps maximum ten fifteen laps um, but the first so much of the race is won in those first sort of you know 100 100 odd meters the the run from the line into into the first corner and that kind of that that can it's a really good tool for training aggression um and that's what's been missing from uh certainly from from some riders it's certainly something that Maverick Vinales could benefit from um I don't think there's anything you can that you can work on during the test. It's the sort of thing that you work on during training. Um, but Yamaha is a. I'm certainly very interested to see what Yamaha bought. Their 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 new bike. Basically, they went uh, in a little bit in the wrong direction with their 2020 chassis, and so their 2021 chassis is more like the 2019 chassis, which uh, Franco Morbidelli is racing. Um, uh, so the bike should turn a little bit better, which was their problem last year. Um, it should be a little bit easier to ride. It should be less fussy as well. They said one of the things we need to be is, you know, uh, it, it, we need to work on our bad days. Um, they need to make their bad days not as bad. Uh, because obviously, you know, Yamaha's won seven races, seven out of 14 races last year. So the bike was good when it, when it was good. It was fantastic. Um, it's just that when things go against them, they have to be all right rather than uh, positively terrible. Yeah. And you mentioned, Dave, about the training side of it there. What I've always seen has been, and we've all talked about it on the podcast, has been that big step that we saw from all the VR46 riders was the fact that they train together all the time, whether yeah. it's on the ranch on flat tracks, whether it's at Mizano on R6s or R1s, they're always competing and they're always competing against people at that high level. And that's what makes the big difference for them. And that's where the likes of Franco has obviously made big steps in the last year. We talked about it on this week's pod, actually. But uh, I think what's what I find interesting about the effect that those things have had was at uh, Valencia. I was sitting in Hareth. There was World Superbike Test and was in Hareth that week. And Franco was up against, I think it was Jack Miller in the race. And I was watching it and one of the Superbike team managers came over and he was just saying about the effect that training all the time at that level made for Franco that even halfway through that battle, he said Franco's coming out on top of this because yeah. he could see that just the effect that you get from having that high level training. And that's where we see all the Instagram posts or videos now is all the riders trying to train together, whether it's the guys out in Catalonia, they're all but like Adam Wheeler out at Rocco's Ranch and they're all trying to work together to try and make sure that they're all able to make that step. And that's definitely one of the big key things. And when you're a manufacturer as well, you're always trying to make those steps. And that's where for Yamaha to bring out three test riders this week, shows that they're really taking it seriously and I know that uh, Cal Crutchlow said that he's got a pretty big list to be able to work through for Yamaha as well 
Yes, they do have. They have a, they have a massive lift of, lift of, uh, list of parts to test. That's also because they haven't been able to test uh, anything in Japan because, uh, first of all, they needed to ship everything over to Qatar. But secondly, you know, the weather conditions hadn't helped. Just to go back to testing to, to to training a little bit. When you talk about people at the ranch, um, at the VR46 to, uh, ranch, when you talk about uh, riding at the Rocco's ranch, we're not talking about riding in circles. We're talking about racing because um, what the VR46 Academy does is they have races every week. Um, you know, Every Sunday night they have a race. They all race against each other, which is, um, a, again, it's about that aggression. It's about um, a learning to be aggressive. It's about uh, uh, learning to, you know, when to put it on the line. So to, uh, and managing risk, and I think that's like to me that's the biggest difference in training. Just going out and seeing how you how fast you can go around a, a motocross track, and actually riding against other riders and figuring out how to get past them, which is what you learn when you're racing. Yeah, and I think uh, I remember I was asking Johnny Ray why he goes motocross riding as his training because obviously we see an awful lot where riders have made that transition to flat track or anything else. And Johnny was saying that one of the big things for him was that there's a lot more high-level motocross riders around him than there is anything else. At the end of the day, if he goes out on pretty much anything on track where he's going to be training, he's going to be better than everyone else. Whereas with a motocross bike, he's able to go out and actually compete. You have to learn, you have to understand, you have to adapt, and then you have to try and attack those guys. And that's what he gets as his big benefit from using that as his training, even though obviously... We see the whole time, like, after Calio has his injury, all you see is, what's he doing ice racing? There's, where's the benefit for that yeah. for him, MotoGP riding? At the end of the day, if you're up in Finland, there's not going to be too many tracks <laughs> where you're able to go out and ride at this time of year. So for the likes of Calio, that's what's safe for him. That's what he's used to. Uh, Marcus Reiterberger uses Speedway a lot as yeah. his training. Then you've got Johnny, as I said, motocrossing the flat track riders like all the guys at Rossi's ranch using that so it really is a case of just what works for you is what's the key and uh, I think that's the the big thing for all these riders because once they get to this point this is where it's all about trying to just get yourself ready for a MotoGP season and it's all well and good to go out and be able to win at the ranch on Sunday that doesn't mean anything if you're making it up in the you know the lower ends of the points paying finishes during the course of a Grand Prix season. And that's where, from this point on, Dave, this is where we're into the business end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, from now on, the training doesn't count. Uh, from now on, we have to... Uh, from now on, it's real. Uh, from now on, we're actually uh, uh, looking at uh, real races. Um, I think uh, you also... We have to distinguish between the, the, these two different tests. So the first test, especially, is always um, yeah, trying new parts, trying lots of different uh, uh, things, trying to figure out what's going to work. What well, I think what you'll see with the first test is... Uh, people using lots and lots of different combinations of parts to, to figure out what's the best package to put together and in the second test they'll be trying out these different packages against the against each other you see lots and lots of back-to-back -back testing and i think what you'll also see is in the second test you'll see a lot more long runs you'll see them really putting together um the runs of laps to see, to understand how the bike behaves over uh, over a long period, how it can, how it's using the tires, how it's managing the tires towards the end, very uh, uh, you know towards it's 10, 15, 20 laps. Um, and in the first, in this first test, it will be you know three, four, five laps. 
um, and then come in, make some more changes, stick for, stick, combine a few new new parts, uh, go back out another three or four, uh, uh, another three or four laps. So um, very different. I don't think we can take the times from the first test very important apart with the, with the exception of Suzuki because Suzuki uh, their only weakness is qualifying so that's going to be their biggest uh, their biggest uh, issue um but yeah the the first test you don't take it too seriously the second test um the you have to look, look that'll be more instructive but again it won't be about the headline times it'll about it'll be about the long runs look at the you have to look at the uh, runs where people have done 10 15 laps and not where they've done uh, three laps and then figure out what their pace is how big the drop off is from the first lap to the last and um, uh, uh, how consistent they are yeah that's always the key thing and that's where like i remember the first time i went to winter tests the only the only actual motor gp winter tests i went to for the flyaways was 2015 and i remember from you know early on whenever i went out to these tests i remember one of the crew chiefs was saying to me you've got to look far deeper than just what you see on the surface it's what tire are they using like if you're looking at you know especially in moto 2 is what you see at the moment because obviously the moto 2 teams are also testing right now it's it's what tire will they actually use at that racetrack and a lot of the time we see that the fast times are set by a really soft tire that isn't applicable to where they're testing and it's a bit like that in moto gp as well because it's like you said david suzuki you can take that a little bit separate because they're going to be working on something very specific but an awful lot of the time it's not about those headline times it's not about what you're able to do for that ultimate pace it's about what you're able to do with a full tank of fuel over 10 laps who's able to get the most laps within a certain range and that's really what you've got to focus on and that's where i think for you especially dave like you tweeted today about how much your your hatred of flying has left you uh, very pleased with uh, the situation at the moment but it's also been where you could overcome that to actually go to Sepang. That was always your one big trip through the year. You'd make sure you got to the Sepang test. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the Sepang test was always fantastic because it was so instructive. It was where everyone is rolling out new bits. Uh, it was the, the experimental test. Uh, it was also a chance to act. It was a chance to like wander down pit lane and actually sort of see the bikes in the flesh and, uh, to be honest, that's the thing that I really, really miss the most is to be able to wander up and down pit lane, uh, actually see the bikes and uh, just talk to people about them and say, you know, what's going on or whatever. Um, uh, see what the mechanics are trying to hide from you. Um, that's the thing that I miss, the actual, uh, the, the actual mechanics of getting, uh, getting there. I mean, as soon as, they, as soon as we get the old Star Trek transporters, I will be first through the gates, I think. Um, I, I can't believe, Dave, you don't miss the Tune Hotel in uh, Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> Surely that's what the big draw of the Sepang test is. I have, I have, uh, I've never been rich enough to stay in the Tune Hotel, let alone the um, uh, uh, what's the thing, the Sama Sama. No, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it was only the well, big. Have you, have you just been Tom Hanks sleeping in the terminal, Dave, or something? <laughs> No, it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, budget hiker uh, was it budget backpacker hotels for us and um, uh, which is actually it's, it is really great apart from the fact there's never actually a desk to work at um, uh, the hotels are great because you're actually sitting in little uh, uh, Malaysian communities and you get to eat real Malaysian food and um, 
Um, it's, it's well, it feels like it feels like proper travel rather than in Europe. We're quite often in sort of more businessy hotels and more traditional hotels, and it just uh, it doesn't. It feels less like travel and more like uh, going somewhere for work. Yeah, well, I think uh, especially for this test, it's one of those situations where a lot of people have been at home for a long time and they're all going to be excited to get themselves out to Qatar, see what's going on. And obviously for everyone watching, it's going to be exciting to see what's going on. And uh, the test, of course, obviously it's two until nine local time, which is 11 o'clock UK time, 12 o'clock European time. So Dave, at least we don't have to get up too early. It's not like the Sepang test. No, it's, uh, it is it is extremely, uh, it, it's very civilised. It, I do like it for that, uh, for that. It was the same reason I used to like the, I mean, I, I like the Qatar race as well because i mean you'd still get home late but it would mean that you would actually get to um you wouldn't have to get up very early and you'd get you'd get to sleep in a little bit um uh you'd be working late but uh, it was it was all quite survivable yeah and uh, obviously for this week we haven't had neil on the pod this week he's been busy moving houses but luckily he hasn't he hasn't left the pod dave we're going to see him this week as well because he'd be on after the flag motogp.com 5 30 UK time 6.30 European time and uh, the last 30 minutes of the test and then a little bit of a recap Simon Crafar is over in Qatar you've also got Jack Appleyard over there and uh, Neil's in the studio with Lewis Sutterby so again we're able to still get uh, plenty of coverage from the test and it's going to at least give us something to see it's going to be good to see bikes on track and see what's going to happen Yeah I mean, it's, I mean always I mean, I love listening to what Neil's got to say, but I'm really looking forward to uh, Simon Crafar. He's got a very, very keen eye. He's very good at spotting details. He's very good at talking to people and, and finding things out for them, from them. So, um, yeah, looking uh, looking forward to that. You you always learn something when Simon Crafar speaks. Yeah, well, I always say that Crafar uh, has forgotten more than we'll ever know, <laughs> and that's where whenever we get to these kind of tests, it's always great, and you just get to see his enthusiasm. That's always something that shines through for Simon. So I'm looking forward to being able to see what he's got to say from the test over there. And uh, Dave, obviously, we'll catch up on the Paddock Pass podcast next week as well, where we'll be able to have a recap. We're also going to be able to have a catch up with Brad Binder. We're going to do that after the Qatar test. So hopefully, we're able to get that into next week's show. Otherwise, we'll just put it in uh, before the start of the season. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Brad has to say. It's going to be interesting to see what we see from Qatar in general. So, Dave, big thanks for joining us on this Patreon special. Thank you very much for hosting it, uh, uh, Steve. I didn't you almost call me Neil there. I almost did call you Neil. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's because I'm old and my memory is going. Uh, one Irishman's the same as another one. Um, so thanks for joining us, David, and thanks to everyone for listening and uh, watching this uh, Patreon special. And a big thank you to everyone for supporting us on Patreon. It really does make a big difference with the Paddock Pass podcast. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. I'm recording on everything. Grant, okay, we'll do a clap, Dave. Three, yeah. two, one. That might have been almost at the same time, but who knows? I have no idea. It, it always seems to be a mile out, and then whenever we look back at the video, it seems fine. <laughs> <laughs>
You ready to start? Yes. 